Hi, this is Ben Zorns with Ellerslie Mission Society. This is part two of a two-part message given by Pastor Eric Ludy at the church at Ellerslie in lovely Windsor, Colorado. It is our hope and prayer that this message would convict, inspire, and invigorate your pursuit of the Lord Jesus Christ. We also want you to know that should you ever have any questions or comments regarding any of the ministries here at Ellerslie, we are always happy to provide answers and receive feedback. Simply contact us at info at ellerslie.com or give us a call at 970-686-9022. We really would love to hear from you. Enjoy the message and may your faith and love in Jesus grow larger as you listen. Now here's Pastor Eric Ludy. Session 2. Sharing the Gospel, the 16 building blocks of the Galleon. You've been entrusted with the Gospel. Your understanding of the Gospel may not be complete, but welcome to the club. All of us in Christianity do not have everything. We do not have the fullest understanding. One of the reasons many of us hesitate to really be strong in delivering the Galleon that we've received is because we don't feel polished. We don't feel finished. And there's a tension in Christianity, which, which is God intends us to study and to be workmen approved and to be excellent with the truth. And yet also to be obedient along the way to deliver that which we do know and to give the hope that resides within us at every turn and to be ready to do it. And so not just ready 10 years from now, but ready even the moment we come to life, to be able to say, I've been changed by Jesus. And as imperfect as our expression may be, the key to the gospel is that it does not lean on our human perfection. And so just as you receiving the gospel hinged on you recognizing it was his work that saved, the same is true with the progression of the gospel in this world. It is not your work of delivering the gospel that is truly that which saves, it is God choosing to condescend to use you to, see, to plant seeds and to water, but he's the one that delights to give the increase. Your job is to be obedient. Your job is to be willing. Now, I, I'm right there with you. I want to do it right. I want to do it perfect. I do not want to give a sideways gospel, an upside-down gospel, a messed-up gospel. I want to give the true gospel. Well, I don't blame you. I think God's interested in you giving a true gospel as well. And so oftentimes the delivery of a true gospel comes from receiving a true gospel. When you get the truth, then you can deliver the truth, even though it might not sound very eloquent. And so one of the things that I oftentimes liken the gospel to is a recipe for a loaf of bread. And if I had a recipe for a loaf of bread and it say it had, you know, flour, water, yeast, salt, uh, and someone said honey uh, the other day when I was talking about recipes. Someone said sugar. I've never thought of putting sugar in bread, but uh, it's probably because I grew up with a health uh, food conscious mother and I uh, have a mom, or a, a, a wife that is as well. Did I just call Leslie my mom? Uh, and did, did we not include yeast? Uh, oh, the yeast and the sugar. There needs to be a sugar for the yeast to go. Okay. So you have your ingredients. Now imagine that we forget the yeast, or we forget the salt. You know, immediately our loaf of bread is not quite what it ought to be. But is it still a loaf of bread? Well, yeah, sort of. It might be flat. It might be a little hard and overcooked and maybe blackened. Uh, it might be a, uh, lacking taste. 
However, it's still fine for you. It's not going to harm you. This is the way most of us have received the gospel. We've received the gospel lacking certain ingredients, and as a result, it's not killing us, but it's also not fully benefiting us. Now, there's another option, and that is to stick poison in for the salt. Say you take out an ingredient, you stick in poison. Now, what do you have? You have something that kills. I am not an advocate of a gospel that kills. I am interested in a gospel that truly brings life. You may not have a full understanding of all the active ingredients in the gospel of Jesus Christ. However, when you have the gospel, and it is in its true form that brings life, even if it not be the fullness of it, you have something to give. So I would like to walk through, and even this is going to be imperfect, what we're going to call the 16 building blocks of the euangelion. I'm going to give you the idea of how the gospel is built by a master builder. So we take someone like Paul who calls himself a master builder. What, is it, what was he building? He was building the church of Jesus Christ. With what? The power of the gospel. He was unashamed of it. And this is what he gave. He discipled in the truth of the gospel. So when he taught the Bible, he was teaching Jesus Christ and him crucified. He was teaching the impetus, the strength of the gospel, that which brings to life. So we'll, we'll break this down. These 16 building blocks, we're going to break them into two different parts or two different baptisms. So I call this the two baptisms of gospel glory. So when you take the gospel, and if you break it into two parts, we'll call it two baptisms. Now that might be a strange word for those of you that think of baptism going in and out of water. Baptism can be going in and out of water. However, that's an external symbol and demonstration of internal baptism. Baptism truly means, and and more specifically means, to be put into something, to be immersed in something. And so when we come to Christ by faith, we are put into Christ. We are baptized into Christ. And so that's the term in Christ. And so all throughout the New Testament, you're going to see Paul referring to the idea of being in Christ. Everything that is necessary for you in your Christian life is found in Christ. That's where you find it all. And then when you are in Christ, you have access to the key thing that truly alters the course of your life, and that is Christ entering you. So there's two dimensions or two baptisms. You in Christ, you immersed or baptized into Christ, and then Christ baptized into you. It's called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And both of them fulfill the fullness of what we call the gospel. If you take out the second baptism and say, oh, that's not the gospel, that's after the gospel, because the gospel is only the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Yeah, so we don't need the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's not part of the gospel. I don't know what your good news sounds like, but if you deny the power thereof and that which makes it all work, which is the life of God in you, you don't have much of a gospel. Thanks for the good news, but I'd I'd like the machinery with it. And so you need the full joyful proclamation. Do you know what he gave you? He didn't just give you redemption. He didn't just give you forgiveness of sins. He gave you power to do it. You see, this is the gospel. It is a full and robust message, and we must not deny the power thereof. The work glove. So earlier in our little teaching series that we're going through, we talked about the invisible hand. Now, you have to imagine that you can't see this hand, right? It's invisible. And so imagine that I stuck a work glove, calfskin work glove on top of it, and now suddenly it makes that which is invisible visible. And you can suddenly see it. And when the hand moves, what do you see? You see the movements of the hand. God is invisible. That's what it says about God. He is spirit. No one has ever seen him. And yet he was seen. How was he seen? In and through Jesus Christ. 
Jesus Christ came and became a work glove, just like us. We're work gloves. And we were intending, originally in our creation, God intended us to, to be worn on top of this glove. I'm sorry, on top of this hand. We are supposed to be gloves the way gloves are supposed to be, and gloves to be gloves need a hand inside of them. And so that's what we were intended to be when Jesus came and revealed the way a glove was supposed to be. All of us are flopping around on the ground in our own calfskin power attempting to do things that a glove in and of itself cannot do. And yet Jesus perfectly fulfilled what a glove was supposed to do, and he rested upon that invisible hand and revealed the invisible hand. And what the invisible hand did, he did. What the invisible hand chose to do, he, he did. That's exactly what was revealed. And then what does Jesus say? Will you allow that hand to be in you as well? You see, he has done the work to rescue us. So the work glove, rescued from the trash dump in the grip of the Savior, so we are in Christ. Jesus Christ is the perfect work glove, reaches into the trash can and finds us. And we enter into his grip. We are baptized into his grip. And we are taken out of the trash and prepared and made ready to become the Father's work glove. We are opened up and then the Father's hand enters into us, known as the Holy Spirit. And he animates our life. And there's the gospel. So baptism one, in the grip of the perfect work glove. So remember how I said these are 16 building blocks of the euangelion? Well, 15 of them are in this first section. 15 building blocks of being firmly established in Christ. And so if I was giving you the gospel, this is what, in a sense, I would go through with you. Now, here's the interesting thing. As a gospel tier, when I encounter a life, I know everything we're about to go through. I know. It's like in my tool belt. It's the gospel tool belt. However, very rarely do I walk through every single thing on this list systematically because it depends on where the person is at that I'm talking to. If they already have 10 of the 15 building blocks, what am I going to focus on? I might repeat something and say, you know this to be true, don't you? And they say, yes. I say, but did you know this? And they go, no. You see, what I'm going to begin to do is fill in the blanks. I want them to have a full understanding of what it means to be in Christ. And so as we give the gospel, we give it different in every situation. You know that I've been in situations where I have seconds to give the gospel? I've been in situations where I have all day to give the gospel. You know that I give it very differently in both of those situations, and yet it's the same gospel? It's just a different variation of it. I'm going to give it in a different way. I had one situation where I was on the way to an airport, and I had about five minutes. I turned around in the, in the car that I was in, and I said, where do you stand with Jesus Christ? And the guy looked at me, and he, he sort of shook his head like, I don't know. And I had about five minutes, and I was already late for my plane, and someone was driving me. And this guy just happened to be thrown into the back seat of the vehicle. And in five minutes, I left this guy with the gospel. And yet, do I wish I had more time? Absolutely. But guess what? He had what he needed. And he gave his life to Jesus. And I think as that story goes, didn't I tell you, Sandy, that he died like a month later after leading his family to Christ too? It was like some, one of those stories that is like a great one for a five-minute gospel story. However, whether you have five minutes or whether you have five hours, we need to be ready to give the gospel. These building blocks, if you have these notes, if you don't have these notes, see if you can get them on the way out. But I want you to get familiar with these building blocks. I have an entire message called the gospel tier, which goes through this in a lot more depth. 
I have a message called The Gospel Worldview, which goes through this message in a lot more depth. And I have a message called The Gospel Sermon Edition, which goes through this message in a lot more depth. All different aspects of what we're talking about today. Number one, if I'm addressing you with the gospel, and if you're addressing someone else with the gospel, one of the first things we need is for those we are communicating the gospel to to see a need. If they don't see a need of a savior, guess what? They're dead men. They must recognize need. Eh, It's sort of hard to do. It's sort of hard for me to convince someone that they have need. At the same time, I can still speak the truth to them. They do have need. Whether or not they recognize it or not is up to God. You see, my job is not to awaken. My job is to give truth. And so seeing the need is of the utmost importance. So when I'm giving the gospel, one of the number one things I'm going to recognize is if that person sees their need. If they don't, oftentimes I'm going to give them a cursory understanding of the fact that they do have need and they need to get right with God. But I'm not going to give them a lot more than that because they're not ready to respond. Most of what we're going to walk through is that which comes out of seeing need. And so as a result, when you are dealing with giving the gospel, it's like ripe fruit. If there's a fruit on the tree that isn't ripe, well, then you're not going to pick it. But if you look over here and you see one that is, hey, this one's ripe. It's ready to come off the tree. It's the same with souls. They are made ready. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it says to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. See, whether we understand it fully or not, every single one of us is guilty. Every single one of us has failed before the perfect righteous standard of God. They may not know that. You may not know that. However, you as a gospel tier need to know that. And as a result, you know it for your own life and you know it for theirs. Now, you may not know how to share it perfectly, but that's why we were given the Bible. You see, it's called the law of God. And I know the law of God sounds like a very bad thing, but guess what? It says the law of God converts the soul. Why? Because it awakens us to need. You see, the law of God can't save, but it does prepare us for the one that can save. When you give the law of God to a soul and you give them the perfect standard of righteousness, you know what every soul will realize? I have sinned. You see, that is the standard of sin and therefore they must be awakened. And so as a result, you can feel free to use the law of God. For it is a converting tool, a converting instrument, which leads someone to their savior. It says the law is a schoolmaster, which leads us to Christ. Number two, You don't just see your sin, but now you're made ready to see your Savior. If someone only sees their sin and they don't see their Savior, they're in a very, very bad, wretched state. Look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none else. Look unto me. You must see your Savior. Faith is like eyesight. And so when you see that cross and you say, I see it. I see my need and I see his work that it is able to save. And when you see those two basic things, it's the beginnings of the generation of life. That which awakens, that which stirs, and that which brings about a newness. Then Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Do you see your sin? Do you see your Savior? You see, no one comes unto the Father but by him. He is the lone means of salvation. As politically incorrect as that may be in our modern day, It's still truth. This is the only means of salvation. And he, Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Number three, 
believe in your Savior. So say I, I walk you through and I say, do you see your need? Yes. Do you see your Savior? Yes. Believe in your Savior. Turn. One of the ways that I look at believing is it's, it's a very simple concept of turning. You see, we have believed and trusted in something. We all have faith. We all have faith in something. A lot of us, we trust in ourselves, our own ability, our own good works. Some of us trust in the systems of this earth, like as long as I have money in the bank, as long as, you know, the government votes Republican, you know, whatever it is, for we as Christians, we have all sorts of funny things that we put confidence in. You must turn away from all of those other false things that have held you up and turn unto the one that can. You grab a hold of him the way Jacob grabbed a hold of the man of God and wrestled with him. That's the way I look at faith. It's a grip. It's a grabbing and saying, I have no other solution but you. I forsake all other options. I believe in you. That whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He that believes on him is not condemned, but he that believes not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. He that believes on the Son has everlasting life, and he that believes not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Ah, you know what? I'd say you better believe. Believing is everything. It's the operative thing of the kingdom. This is what you must do. Don't just see your need. Don't just recognize that he did die. Did he die for you? Are you willing to turn unto that and grip it and say, this is my life? He that believes and is baptized shall be saved. He that believes and is immersed into Christ shall be saved, but he that believes not shall be damned. It's pretty clear in Scripture. Number four, repent. Now, a lot of these things are happening simultaneously. When you are believing in Christ, you are disbelieving something else. You are actually turning from it. However, in the Christian expression is a word called repent, and it's not one to be overlooked. Turn away from all things prior and turn unto Christ. Repent ye therefore and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. Turn from anything else you've put confidence in. Turn from your previous life. Enter into a new life in Christ. Number five, get in Christ. Now all of these things are happening simultaneously. However, one of the things I always like to do when giving the gospel is to enunciate the mechanics of it. And so what I will talk about is the idea of being in. Because if you just believe on, or you turn to, and you say, yeah, I esteem what he does. However, what you need to realize is that what believing offers you is entrance. The door is unlocked. And so if this building next door is the one I typically use as my illustration, it's called the lake house. And if it was a blizzard condition, negative, I saw in my uh, weather app that it was supposed to be like negative 17 degrees uh, this week uh, during one of the nights. Whoa. So say you're up and roaming the streets of Windsor one of those nights when it's negative 17 degrees and say it decides to snow or, you know, whatever, some miserable windy gust comes upon you. You're in that gust. However, the door is unlocked. And so what I always want to communicate with someone is it's 70 degrees temperature controlled air in the lake house. The door is unlocked and you have believed, which means you have access in. Walk in. Take it. Take what is available to you in Christ. And that's part of the action of faith. So when you turn and believe, you are clothed. You are in. But you may not be enjoying the benefits of that in. So get in Christ. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. 
You know, in, when you study what it means to be in the blood of Jesus, to be in Christ, it's quite extraordinary. This is just a few of the list. He forgives you. Forgiveness of sins is found in Christ. He washes you. Cleansing and washing from sin is available in Christ. It's not found outside of Christ. It's found in Christ. So the moment you enter into Christ, you are forgiven. You are washed. He gets rid of all your guilt. You know that pain in your conscience that is constantly stabbing you? That is removed. It is purged out of your conscience. He protects you. He is the perfect behavior you must have to get to the Father. He gets you to the Father. Another dimension of being in Christ, which I always like to enunciate to people, is the command to confess. We are not saved by confession. Confession is the outflow of being saved. In other words, when you turn unto Christ, you are changed. You become a new creature. So enunciate that. If you really believe it, God says, speak it. The tongue in scripture is a symbol of occupied territory. When the devil holds the tongue, you speak all sorts of things you shouldn't be speaking. When God takes over this body, the tongue is the first symbol of it. So God says, confess with that tongue. Declare that I am your Lord, that you have believed. And so we are called to confess two different things in scripture. Our sins, I have been wrong. The behavior I have committed is against God's law. I am a sinner deserving of judgment and death. That's confession of sin. However, confession of our new loyalty is called a confession of faith. But I have believed in Jesus Christ. And in believing in Jesus Christ, I have entered into his life. I am now in Christ and I'm a new creature in Christ. His death is my death. His burial, my burial. His resurrection, my resurrection. And now he's seated in heavenly places and I am in him. Seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And his spirit abides in me and I have all that I need for life and godliness in this earth. That's a confession of faith. It flows from the tongue. God is demonstrating to the highest heaven, the lowest hell, that this is occupied territory. Confess. Now, forgive. You see, when you enter into Christ, you have forgiveness of your sins. So what does Jesus say? Forgive, so that I can forgive you. It's a flow-through channel. It's like if you stop up that valve and don't allow the forgiveness of Christ through you to others, then what it does is it stops it up from even entering into your life and being efficacious with you. So what you are supposed to do is follow through on the grace of God that he's given you and allow it to flow outward. If anyone has offended you, you forgive them. How do you forgive them? In Christ. You have the grace to do it. A lot of you have tried in your own pocket strength to forgive up to now. He's like, I just can't do it. I just can't forgive. Yeah, because you're digging in your pockets. Go in Christ. In Christ, you have the power to forgive. Everything you would ever need to be able to forgive others is given you. So when he forgives you, you let that forgiveness out and you immediately turn and forgive everyone in your life. You walk through, if you need to make a list, make a list. But walk through and forgive them in the person of Christ and allow God to make you a blessing unto them. Renounce. Renounce is the concept, the way I oftentimes describe it, is it's almost like being plugged into an outlet. And as long as you're plugged into that outlet, that electrical power is surging into you. Many of us are plugged into a dark power. And as a result, that power has controlled us, whether that's fear, whether that's lust, whether that's pride, greed, you name it. It's controlled us. It's something that we legally allowed in. We almost like signed our name, if you want to look at it this way, to a legal document, and now the enemy holds it on record. It's like, yeah, they're mine. Renouncing is declaring that you have a new master, and you are no longer going to allow this dark power in. So it's unplugging it, and the enemy can't slap your hand when you do it. In the authority of the name of Jesus, you renounce all ties with darkness. 
And it's a key factor in the progression of the gospel in our life. Do you understand what Jesus did? Do you understand what the gospel has offered you? You have a new master. All the old masters you used to serve are null and void. Prove it and renounce it. Turn your back on it. You don't even need to yell when you do it. Say, in the name of Jesus, I renounce lust. You can smile even after you do it. You see, lust has no more power over you. If you believe in the truth, you turn your back on all the lies and all the old masters. The gospel has power to save you, not just from big S issues, but all the small S moments in your life. Transfer loyalties. This is literally a transfer of loyalties. You transfer from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. And it's a deliberate statement. You can even say it and speak it with your tongue. I am no longer under the control of the devil. I am no longer in his kingdom. I do not serve sin. I serve Jesus Christ. I do what his spirit requires of me. I have him as my head. And you transfer into a new kingdom. Number six, he goes to the cross. Now remember, what's your position? If you're in Christ, then you go where he goes. Where did he go? He went to the cross. You see, when he went to the cross... As strange as this might sound, he took you with him. I know that's somewhat of a bizarre concept because you're like, I live now 2,000 years later. Yeah, but what the Bible declares is that when he died, you died. Which means that when you enter into Christ, you're entering into his work 2,000 years ago. When you believe, his work becomes your work. So it becomes clothing for you even though it took place 2,000 years ago. So he goes to the cross and guess what? You go with him. You have a problem, and that is called the old man. It's it's not just the demonic powers that have controlled you. It's the flesh. It's that old part of you that needs to die, and yet you can't make it die. You can't get rid of it, but he can. And so when you turn unto Jesus Christ, what the gospel stipulates is that his work was sufficient for you, that his death was the death that you needed to die. And it literally dealt a death blow to your old life so that you could be born again. And you could be a new man, not an old man. So he gets selfish old you, the old man, and brings him to the cross, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him. So what does it say in scripture about your old man? He's dead. That's what it says. He says he's crucified with Christ. So therefore, your old life isn't something you should put up with anymore. Your old life starts mouthing off. What do you say? Hey, you're dead. Now, death in the Christian existence is not what we always picture. It is, it no longer has legal authority and power over you. So it's sort of like being dead to gravity if you're in a plane. Is gravity still there? Yes. But you're dead to its power and it no longer controls you because you are functioning after a higher law known as the law of aerodynamics. When you enter into the plane, gravity is trumped. The same is true with sin. Does sin still exist? Does your old man still have opinions and want to say things? Oh, yeah, he does. But you are dead to him, which means he has no more power over you. And technically, from this day forward, you never need to serve him again. He's just very cunning and very enticing, which is where temptation comes in. However, you even have the grace of God to deal with that. All the equipment that is necessary for living this life, which we could call impossible, has been bequeathed to us at the cross. But that is why the preaching of the gospel is so essential to us as the saints, because we quickly forget the merits of the shed blood. We quickly forget what we have in Jesus Christ, and we can easily be as a dog back to vomit. 
which is why the preaching of the gospel and the preaching of the cross must continue unabated in the church all our days. It is essential. It is the ingredient that reminds us that we have been given the power to live this. Number seven, he goes to the tomb. So if you're in Christ, when he went to the cross, you went to the cross. When he died, you died. Your old man is crucified with him. And then where did he go? He went to the tomb. He went to the burial. Well, guess what? That means to be put out of sight, no longer visible. What is no longer visible? Your old life. Your old life is no longer seen. Old Eric is dead and buried. No longer visible. You no longer see old Eric. You're supposed to see a new man, which is Jesus Christ, in Eric. So he buries your old man, your old behavior. Know you not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ, which means put in, were baptized into his death? We were put into his death. Therefore, we are buried with him by being put into his death. Self-denial comes with this, where we are literally sitting on a throne and we need to choose to get off of it. Up to this point before we came to Christ, we could say, I don't want to sit in the control position of my life. However, you can't get out. It's like you're super glued down. When you come to Christ, it's like some solvent that dissolves all the super glue and you can actually move. And Jesus has stepped down from that control position. And it's called self-denial. Pouring out the spike note is the other illustration that is given in Scripture. When Mary of Bethany takes her most valued possession, the thing that she put trust in, and she dumped it out on Jesus. You see, what Jesus says is what this woman did when the gospel is shared from this point onward needs to be shared in memorial of her. What she did, what what did she do? She gave up everything and poured it out on Jesus. Anything else that she could possibly put her trust in and her confidence, she dumped it on him. Number eight, he rises again. You rise with him. You see, I don't even care if you feel alive. Christianity is based on facts. God has said it, you believe it. When Jesus died, you died. When he was buried, you were buried. And when he rose again, you rose again. And the newness of life. You have newness of life in Christ Jesus. He gets you all clean and ready for a new man. You see, you're like the old work glove and you've been, you know, you're just grotesque sitting in that garbage heap. You're not really fit to be the glove of the king. So what he does is he grips you and he cleans you and he washes you. He forgives you. He redeems that work glove and he makes it something that can be a tribute unto the creator once again. He cleans you up and he opens you up and says, now ask, ask for the hand to enter. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likenesses of his death, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Number nine, he ascends to the Father. You ascend with him. Isn't that a strange statement to say that you ascend with Christ? Aren't you seated here right now on earth? You see, we're talking about your spiritual man. Your spiritual man is actually in Christ right now. When you believe you are actually clothed in Christ, you are in Christ Jesus, and you are a new creature, and you go where he goes. When he went to the cross, you went to the cross. When he went to the burial, he went, you were buried. When he rose again, you rose again. And when he ascended to the right hand of the Father, where did you go? You went with him. And that's why it says in Ephesians, we are seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You see, this is what's amazing about Christianity. Where's his body? It's in heaven. Where's his spirit? In your body. Where's your body? Here on earth. Where's your spirit? It's in his body, in heaven. 
seated. You are secured for eternity in Christ. You see, you're in the most secure spot. I mean, you think Fort Knox would be secure, NORAD secure. Try being in Christ in heavenly places. Do you think the enemy can get you there? Oh, no. You see, that's our position. And when a Christian knows his position in Christ, it changes the game. It's called the gospel. Even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, which means made alive. By grace you are saved and hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Number 10. So you're in Christ Jesus, and where is he? He's in the heavenly place. So what's he doing there? Well, he's your high priest. A high priest is entering the temple, which is the presence of God, the Holy of Holies in heaven. He enters the Holy of Holies as our great high priest. You enter with him. How do you get into the Holy of Holies? How do you get into the presence of God? By Jesus. By believing in Christ. He takes you into the very presence of God as the high priest. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in two from the top to the bottom, and the earth did quake and the rocks rent. When Jesus died, the temple veil in the earthly temple was rent in two, and access was made, and also an access for the Holy Spirit to enter into this world was made. He brings us into the very near and intimate presence of the King of Kings. He legally adopts us as his children. Number 11, he sits down as King of Kings at the right hand of the Father, and you are seated in him. He is King of Kings, and you are seated in him. It says all things are under his feet. If all things are under his feet and you're in him, what's under your feet? as the saints of God, all things. When we as Christians understand our position in Christ, the gospel, talk about a joyful proclamation of a kingdom. We are fearless, unstoppable, immovable. We are the saints of God, seated in heavenly places in Christ. We are no longer ruled by our old fetishes, our old behaviors, our old impulses. We are new creations in Christ Jesus, functioning, thinking, living, wholly different after a new pattern, a new life, a new power. He makes available to you his own personal inheritance. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe according to the working of his mighty power which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion in every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come, and hath put all things under his feet, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that fills all in all. Number 12, you must reckon with this gospel truth. At Ellerslie in discipleship, one of the things we do is we don't just give these facts, because these are all truths, but we teach our students how to reckon. Because reckoning is how you appropriate this. Have you ever felt like the truth of God is like a bar of soap, a wet bar of soap? And you get it for a moment, but then it slips out? I, and it's not just me, God desires the truth to be gripped, to be held, to change us, not to just pass through as a slippery bar of soap. Reckoning is that key. Reckoning is an accounting term for taking something to your account by faith. So, in other words, if you were without money and you had zero in your bank account and yet you had an immediate need for funds and you had a checkbook in front of you and the the gangster is saying, pay me right now or die. And you know that you have nothing in your account and it's only going to get worse if you write of a bad check. And imagine if I came in and I said, look, I saw your need and I wired money into your account. I checked on it. It's there. 
However, you can't personally check on it. What are you going to have to lean on? You're going to have to lean on my word. You're going to have to lean on my promise. You see, my promise and my word is one thing. And you might trust it because I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Christian man who esteems truth and esteems high character. However, God's character is what we put our confidence in when we believe. That's what faith is. Faith puts its confidence in God's character and God's promise. What does God say? I wired money into your account. 2,000 years ago, I did the work. Believe it. Write the check. And that's what reckoning is. Reckoning is saying, I have it in my account by faith, based on his word and my faith in his word. I believe it. I believe it to be true. And so actually, actually I will write the check with perfect confidence. What God has said to you is that everything that is needful for your salvation, both big S and small S, has been done. Write the check with your life. Take a step forward and say, I believe. I believe I will have everything I need for life and godliness. So what does Paul say? Likewise, reckon you also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin. Are you willing to say, I'm dead indeed unto sin? God said it. I'm dead to sin. No longer does my old man control me. I know your experience testifies otherwise. You've been controlled by your old man your entire life. However, when you believe, you're supposed to reckon it. It's there. Imagine that I had a pile of money in the back room, and it's been there for 2,000 years. And it's for you, but you never knew about it. Well, guess what? You'd never appropriate it then. You'd never take it. That's the same way with truth. It's already there. It's been provided. However, unless someone tells you of it, you won't know to get it. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. How will they know unless they hear? We are called to tell, to speak of this joyful proclamation. All the provision you could ever need has been made available to you. What would you do if you found out? I mean, you're penniless. You have nothing of your own. You have bills piling up. And imagine I say to you, all the money you need is in that back room back there. What would you do? Well, if you believed my word, you could rejoice even in your seat now, even before you saw it and had the crinkle of one of those bills between your fingers. You could rejoice and give a dance now because you knew that it was done. Why? Based on the word of someone who spoke to you. You believed their word. We believe the word of scripture. We believe God's promises. He says our old man is crucified with him. We believe it. And as a result, we can boldly say with this tongue, my old man is crucified with him. I reckon myself dead indeed unto sin, and I reckon myself alive unto God through Jesus Christ, my Lord. I speak it with my mouth. I have it now, even though the crinkle between my fingers has not yet been gained. It will be gained. Just as if I kept walking towards that room, what would I find? I would find all the riches that I would need to pay all my bills. Every bill you have spiritually has been supplied for. Everything you need for this life has been given you. Number 13, you must present and yield your body. This is a tricky one because most of us aren't too excited about giving up control of our body. And yet, this is part of what is the mechanics of the gospel. You see, if you hold on, you're only deteriorating the very truth that you're believing in. You see, what God says is, I purchased not just your salvation, I purchased you. I purchased your body, not just your spirit, our body. These are old bodies. They're decaying and and passing away, and yet God says, yeah, I purchased that. That's valuable to me. Yield and present yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. It's just your reasonable service. Give him your body. 
Now, what's amazing is if your old man is dead and you've reckoned it, guess what? There's no hindrance from you being able to give him your body. It's when you haven't reckoned yourself dead, the old man is very loud. Oh, don't give him your body. What's he going to do with it? That voice is silenced. And so when I walk someone through the gospel, I make it very clear that their old man is dead. And then I say, now don't listen to him anymore. Then I say, now yield your body. The first demonstration of the new triumph in their life is that they're able, like a knife through soft butter, to be able to say, God, take what is rightfully yours. Number 14, let not sin reign. Sounds easier said than done, doesn't it? That's the command, let not sin reign. Well, what's the difference between you, pre-Jesus, and post-Jesus? Now that you have Jesus, guess what? You have authority. You have power in your life to live. So what does Paul say? With that power, wield it and say no to sin. Before now, you couldn't say no to sin. But now, you can keep your back turned to it. It can make all sorts of noise, fireworks, displays over here of temptation. You keep your eyes focused on Jesus, and guess what? It no longer has power over you. So let it not reign and have power over you. That's basically what it's saying. The power over you is Jesus Christ. Don't let sin have power over you again. You do not need to return as a dog to vomit. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in the lust thereof. Number 15, be baptized in water. So what in the world, why would we need to do that? Well, you are not saved by being baptized in water. Baptism in water is a statement or a declaration under the body of Christ, the highest heaven, the lowest hell, of your position in Christ. And so as a result, it's just a statement throughout Christian history and sort of like what the eunuch said. And as they went on their way, they came unto a certain water and the eunuch said, see, here is water. What does hinder me to be baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stand still and they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized them. It's an external symbol. Went just like confession of sin and of faith, when you use this tongue to declare and to confess, it solidifies something. It's not what saves you, but it establishes something. The same with baptism in water. It establishes something in your life. It's not what saves, because baptism is by faith in Christ Jesus. However, when you are externally baptized, there is a solidification of that very reality, and you become stronger in it. So baptism number two, that whole first 15 was the first part of the gospel in Christ. The second part, which I could take a lot more time on, but which we don't have, is what we'll call baptism number two, becoming clothing for the almighty hand, becoming the work glove that slides perfectly on top of the invisible hand. Or another way of saying it is allowing the invisible hand in. Getting into Christ in order that Christ can get into us. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, says Jesus. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, you may be also. And whither I go, you know, and the way you know. Thomas saith unto him, Lord, we know not whither thou goes, and how can we know the way? Jesus' famous line is right here. Jesus saith unto him, I am the way. How are you going to get to the Father? In Christ. He is the way. It's the only way to the Father. He's the truth and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by him. And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter. Who's that? It's the Holy Spirit. That he may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it sees him not, neither knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you. Listen to this. Big promise. And shall be in you. I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. Isn't it an interesting statement? He's saying, I'm going and I will send you a comforter. And he says, I'm coming to you. You see, 
It's Christ that's coming, but he's coming in spirit form. It's God. Just as Jesus was the annunciation of God and was filled with the Holy Spirit and did only what the Father was doing, so the Holy Spirit that comes to us is the extension of Christ, the extension of the word of truth, the word of life. Yet a little while and the world sees me no more, but you see me because I live, you shall also live. At that day you shall know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. I tell you the truth, it is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. What has Jesus made available to us? You see, Jesus was already seated in heavenly places before he came. So what's new? It's what he accomplished when he came. That's what's new. And he actually says it's better for us, it's expedient, it's beneficial for us that he goes. Doesn't that sound a little contradictory? It's like, uh, having you here is very nice. I I think it'd be better if we all took a vote to keep Jesus here than to have him go be with the Father. He says, no, you don't understand. You see, what I accomplished for you was to make you fit to be vessels for my very life so that I could be in you. It's not just so that you can be in me. It's so that you can be in me to get to the Father and ask the Father for the Holy Spirit so the Holy Spirit can be in you and now you can live the way you were intended to live. So number 16, this is the final building block. Each of these could be talked on for an entire sermon or entire sermon series themselves. Number 16, receiving the life of God, the Holy Spirit. So first you turn unto Christ and you are clothed in Christ. But why are you clothed in Christ? You're clothed in Christ so that his death is your death, his burial, your burial, his resurrection, your resurrection. The wrath of God is satiated. There is a redemption. There is a purchase of your very being in that process. You are justified by his righteous work so that you can enter into that holy of holies boldly unto the Father. He says, ask the Father. Ask the Father in my name. What do I ask him for? Ask him for that what you need. What do I need? Well, you need me inside of you. Is that possible? Ask and find out. You see, this is the gospel. The gospel isn't just the first baptism into Christ, which is amazing. It is the second baptism into us. This is the joyful proclamation of a kingdom. His kingdom is now in us, established on this earth, in us. And by the way, that's a joyful proclamation. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? Come on, little child. Ask him. Ask him. Don't you know your position in Christ? You see, if you're in Christ, you can ask the Father. You can ask the Father for the Holy Spirit. You see, being in Christ affords you one very significant thing, the life of God in you. I know it's pretty amazing that Being in Christ affords you forgiveness, cleansing, and washing. It saves you. It rescues you. However, it also gives you building block number 16, the capstone. It gives you the almighty life of God in you. Remember what I said the gospel was? He has done it, and he will continue to do it. You see, how does he continue to do it? He enters in. He enters into us as if we're a work glove. And he makes our life work the way it's supposed to work. Christ in you, the great mystery hidden for ages and generations, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. What is the mystery, Paul? Which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. There is a hope that this work glove would once again show off the invisible hand. And guess what? 
Christ in you is that hope of glory. There's only one way that it can, make, that it can happen, and that is Christ in you. Well, how's that going to happen? Well, he's made a way for you to get into him. If you're in him, then he can be in you. And this is the gospel. A vessel first emptied, now filled. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as a rushing mighty wind. And it filled all the house where they were sitting, and there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire. And it sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. When the Spirit of God enters into the body of Christ, he grabs the tongue. And he proclaims through this tongue the glories of his kingdom. Now, don't trip over tongues in this. It's just what he did. That's what he did. That's his choice. That's his way. However, one of the things I want you to catch is that when the Holy Spirit enters into the body of Christ, it grabs the tongue. And now this tongue is used to proclaim the glories of that kingdom, to proclaim a joyful proclamation of a kingdom. This tongue in us, set on fire by the fire of heaven to do that. We are gospel bearers, not just gospel receivers, but gospel bearers. And this tongue is set on fire to do exactly that. So we believe in Christ and are clothed, but then the life of Christ enters in and grabs the tongue and says, speak it. The gospel. For, just, for Christ also has once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us, bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. Colossians 1, whereof I am made a minister according to the dispensation of God which is given to me for you, to fulfill the word of God, even the mystery which has been hid from ages and generations, but now is made manifest to his saints, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom, that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Isn't that interesting? Then in the same context of talking about the mystery hidden, which is that Christ will be inside of us. Paul says, so I labor to, make, to present every man perfect in Christ. You see, when every man is presented perfect in Christ, clothed in the righteous work of Jesus, well, guess what? Then the mystery can be revealed in us, which is Christ in us. Whereunto I also labor, striving according to his working, which worketh in me mightily. You see, Paul has the gospel at work within him. He's sharing the gospel, but the gospel mechanics and the gospel power is what is enabling him to do what he's doing. He is striving according to God's working, which works in him mightily. That's the gospel. You see, Jesus Christ has done the work, and he continues to do the work. He has done it, and he will continue to do it. Do you not know? Remember Paul, he's always asking that question. Do you not know? Have you not heard? That you are meant to be the dwelling place of the living God, the temple of the Holy Spirit? Didn't anyone tell you this? If no one tells you this, you don't understand it. You don't even know to ask for it. You don't even know to pursue it. You see, you would not even believe without the Holy Spirit. But did you know that you were meant to be his dwelling place? There's a picture of it in the Old Testament that we're going to finish with. And it's an amazing picture. I want you to realize that Solomon, when he built the temple according to the pattern that David, his father, passed down to him, Jesus built a temple according to a pattern passed down through to him. It's the pattern of Scripture, the pattern of the perfect temple. 
the perfect form. Jesus fulfilled the perfect form. However, a temple absent of the Holy Spirit is not what God intended. We are a house, but we need to be filled. And without that 16th building block, the gospel is not functional. It does not resonate in the world in which we preach it. We must be deliverers of the gospel with a tongue set on fire by the fires of heaven. Otherwise, they will not hear it. It does not matter how studious and scholarly you are. It matters how hot your tongue is with the fires of heaven. When you spend your life in the presence of God where he has brought you, when you live there, your tongue will be hot, touched with burning coals. And when you speak, the Spirit of God will speak. And hearts will be awakened, not because of your eloquence, but because of his power. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation, not us. We are merely the carrying devices of it. It's a humble position, but a noble one. We have been chosen to be the carriers, the messengers of the Most High God's message. So do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? So listen to this. Thus all the work that Solomon made for the house of the Lord was finished. And the priest brought in the ark of the covenant of the Lord unto his place, to the oracle of the house, into the most holy place, even under the wings of the cherubim. So the ark of the covenant is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. The temple is a symbol of the body of Christ. The body of Christ is finished. It's done. That which was necessary has been accomplished. So what's, what moves in? The ark of covenant. As the Ark of Covenant comes into the Holy of Holies, it came even to pass as the trumpeters and singers were as one to make one sound to be heard in the praising and thanking the Lord. And when they lifted up their voice with the trumpets and cymbals and instruments of music and praised the Lord, saying, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever, that the house was filled with a cloud, even the house of the Lord. What I could say is, do you not know that you're the house of the Lord? That's what Paul says in the New Testament. Do you, don't, don't you realize that that's us? That's the body of Christ? And it's filled with a cloud, even the house of the Lord, so that the priest could not stand to minister by reason of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord had filled the house of God. Praise God. It's a joyful proclamation. The work is finished. The temple prepared. And when we believe and we turn, we are clothed in that perfect work, his perfect temple. We enter into it. And we become the recipients of that cloud. And that cloud comes and dwells within us. And now the glory of God fills that house. Now there's a hope of glory in this world that the world will see. The Sawi tribes of this world seem impossible to reach. And they are impossible for us. We do not have it in our pockets to do it. But we have that which we need in Christ Jesus. We have everything we need for life and godliness. Why? Because he has done it, and he will continue to do it. That is good news. Thank you so much for listening to part two of this two-part message by Pastor Eric Ludi, pastor at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. 
For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns cheering you on as Christ cultivates his set-apart life within you.